You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. When you're in the middle of a war where you're being attacked by your neighbor in the brutal and vicious ways that Russia is attacking Ukraine, it only stands to reason that you'd be asking for things to come as rapidly as possible. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. I think there needs to just be a come up and people need to sort of get together and say COVID funding is important. Everything is going to be about the 2022 midterm election and there's no escape from that. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Ukraine prepares for a major battle in the Donbass as President Zelensky begs for more weapons. And Russia calls up retired soldiers. Yeah, it's come to this. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics. I'm Joe Matthew, back in the chair today, joining you from the mothership in New York, where we begin with the shifting war in Ukraine and a conversation ahead with retired Air Force General David Deptula, one of the leading voices we've relied on since the start of this war. And Donald Trump puts his chips on Dr. Oz. We'll talk about a busy weekend on the midterm campaign trail with Bloomberg national political reporter Mark Niquette. Analysis today from our signature panel. Rick and Jeannie are here. Bloomberg politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis to help us make sense of the madness on a Monday. Russia regroups for a new push in the Donbass. Some very concerning news over the weekend. A shifting strategy, they say, that follows what National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan calls Russia's loss of the Battle of Kiev. They lost. Now they've had a chance to regroup, and we see from satellite imagery an eight-mile-long convoy of tanks and armored vehicles heading east, kind of like the one we saw coming from the north. Russia now turning as well to retired soldiers to plug holes in the ranks. And a new top commander you might have heard about. Put in place by Vladimir Putin, Alexander Vornikov, who led Russia's air war in Syria, known for conducting the same kind of war crimes we've been seeing in Ukraine. They call him the Butcher. President Zelensky and his lieutenant spent the weekend making pleas for more weapons and for faster delivery, aiming their comments squarely at the U.S. Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby today says America is still pouring weapons into the country. Here he is. We aren't slowing down. 
uh, the, regardless of the Russian refocus on the Donbass, we're not slowing down. That stuff continues to move. It's going to continue to move. We said as much as we can, as fast as we can, and we made it. Um, and uh, the reprioritization of the Russians on the east hasn't had an effect on our ability to help coordinate the delivery of massive amounts of security assistance from the United States and other nations in, into Ukraine. That that's, flow still continues. That's the thing. It's not just American weapons. We're helping everyone else coordinate delivery of their weapons. And as we prepare for something Ukraine's foreign minister warns could resemble World War II. Dmitry Kuleba, World War II. We're joined by one of the most trusted voices on military strategy and history. Retired Air Force General David Deptula is with us right now, back with us on Sound On. General, we welcome you back. It's great to have you. If we're about to witness World War II-style warfare, armored units crossing open fields, supported by air power, does Ukraine stand a chance? Uh, well, Joe, thanks for having me back on. Uh, the short answer is yeah. Um, they stand a chance, and they'll stand a better chance um, if the United States and NATO supply them with the kind of weapons that will give Ukraine an advantage. And that means more advanced air defenses like fighter aircraft, surface-to-air missiles, as well as surface-to-surface missiles, because the best way to stop the Russian Air Force is to kill it on the ground. Okay. Uh, you know, this morning, and you mentioned it earlier, but... This morning, I saw the pictures of miles and miles of Russian tanks, armor, uh, or armor, other armor vehicles yeah. and artillery lined up on the roads. And I was reminded of the highway of death that in the closing days of Desert Storm uh, were evidenced when we routed the Iraqi army. Um, and with the right equipment, the Ukrainians can do the same thing. Uh, and the United States needs to be supplying them so they can do so. Why not start strafing that armored column right now, General? Why doesn't the Ukrainian Air Force have that ability? Well, because they have they, they have a small number, a relatively small number of air defense aircraft that they are husbanding to be able uh, to launch against Russian uh, aircraft. And, and that's one of the reasons why it's so important uh, to get them, for example, those additional Polish MiG-29s, mm -hmm. uh, even if they're just used as spares. Uh, but I also would tell you that they, they need the numbers. I mean, at some point, numbers matter. I mean, they only have about 55 operational aircraft. So those MiGs are a lot more yeah, meaningful that, than, than the Pentagon is making them out to be. And I ask you that, General, because there was a real conversation over the weekend about the difference between defensive and offensive weapons. We've, of course, been providing defensive weapons. Does the U.S. need to do more to help Ukraine take the offensive, take the war to Russia? Um, the answer is yes. But, Joe, let me first offer to you that there's no such thing as an offensive or a defensive weapon. Uh, so explain it, to our listeners what people are talking about when, when we hear that. Well, I don't know. I, I mean, they're <laughs> demonstrating their ignorance. Okay, so that's not a, not a phrase that you would use. In terms of, of shooting no. missiles into Russia, however, in terms of attacking from the air with regard to the MiGs, I, I'm assuming this is the type of stuff they're talking about. Absolutely. You want, what we cannot forget that Russia is the aggressor here. Mm -hmm. Russia attacked Ukraine. Therefore, everything, everything that the Ukrainians are doing is defensive in the context of trying to rid the Russians from their invasion. That includes taking out Russian aircraft troops 
and armor located in Russia. General Deptula, I mentioned this guy they're calling the butcher, the new commander, uh, Alexander Vornikov. I realize he's got uh, quite a story to tell uh, and has a past that would be very consistent with some of the war crimes that we've seen in the attacking uh, against civilians. He led the air war, at least to start out in Syria. I'm, I'm less curious about the, the potential change in strategy here because of this individual general and more curious about the fact that for the first time now, all of Russia's military forces are apparently answering to one person, this Vornikov. Will that bring continuity and, and a more effective Russian military? Um, it may. The fact of the matter is we're in a period of time where the, the, the coming Russian offensive is going to take a lot more concerted effort than fighting off the initial onslaught. And that's mm. because the Russians are learning from the mistakes that they made. And so they're going to attempt to correct them. Unifying command under a single operational level commander is uh, one way to get their act back together again, which just uh, accelerates the point uh, and the need for equipping the Ukrainians um, with weapons that give them an advantage. Some troubling comments today from Sergei Lavrov, Russia's foreign minister, of course, who is the, the mouthpiece for Vladimir Putin. Uh, he said that Russia's war with Ukraine is meant to put an end, that's a direct quote, meant to put an end to U.S. world domination and NATO expansion. The NATO expansion part I have heard about repeatedly since before the invasion. But to put an end to U.S. world domination, General, what does that mean? What does that make you worry about? It doesn't make me worry about anything except that it makes me worry that this might uh, cow the White House even more than the Russians have already done to deter action by NATO and the U.S. to assist Ukraine. Hmm. Um, and, and hopefully the White House won't be cowed further by Lavrov's ridiculous statement. Um, it, it is absolutely pure propaganda to try to turn the tables in the perception of the populace, uh, international populace, that somehow the United States is to blame for this, which, again, is ludicrous and ridiculous. It should be ignored and it should be answered um, by moving uh, MiG-29s, F-15s, F-16s, and training the Ukrainian fighter pilots to fly A-10s as well. That would be an upgrade when you have an eight-mile-long column of tanks and armored vehicles coming in. If, if the Pentagon is correct, by way of spokesman John Kirby, General, that the U.S. sees a more protracted and bloodier phase in the war ahead with the expectation of very intense fighting in the Donbass, is it more important than ever to, to complete this transfer of MiGs from Poland? We heard Jake Sullivan yesterday saying they can go ahead and do it as long as they don't use the base in Germany. It seems like those MiGs are more valuable now than they would have been a couple of weeks ago. Do you agree? Well, that's true. And it's not just those MiGs, but again, it's additional fighter aircraft. The Air Force has, is going to be retiring over 100 F-15s and F-16s this year. So instead of sitting in the boneyard uh, collecting dust in the Arizona desert, yeah. um, we ought to put them to good use by giving them to the Ukrainians. And now that this is going to be an extended and protracted conflict, um, and it's going to take maybe 
uh, one to two months to train up these competent fighter pilots to fly them. Um, that's the kind of answer we need to give uh, Putin. Uh, given the willingness of the Ukrainians to put their lives on the line, we've got to empower them with the required tools to fight and, uh, and win. Because guess what? Uh, th- they're fighting on behalf of the complete free world. Hmm. And so we need to support them to the greatest degree possible not the least that we can get by with, according to White House and Pentagon lawyers. Well, I feel like we're hearing two different stories when it comes to the the supplying of military gear to Ukraine, General. I know that a lot of our stuff has gotten in there. We see images of them shooting our our uh, shoulder-launched missiles and so forth. But when President Zelensky and, and others, including the foreign minister, say it's just not getting through fast enough, what is holding all of this up? Is it supply lines or, or something that we're not talking about right now? Yeah, um, Joe, I'm not going to comment on that uh, just simply because um, I don't know. Um, Look, I don't want to take anything away from what the administration and the Department of Defense has been doing in terms of providing equipment, because that's all been good. But these these have been relatively small weapons. They're important. Don't get me wrong. So you want to see them get moving faster as well, it sounds like. Uh, General, it's great to have you with us. I always wish I had more time with retired Air Force General David Deptula. Kicking things off here on the fastest hour in politics. I'm Joe Matthew in New York. We'll assemble the panel next with Rick and Jeannie. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Russian tanks rolling to the Donbass as President Biden meets virtually today with the Prime Minister of India. Of course, India seems to like the cheap Russian oil. And we're being real careful about the way we handle all of this in an effort to get them off the oil. Let's assemble the panel now with Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. It's great to have you both here. I wonder if you heard uh, Jen Psaki talking about this today. Just a very delicate walk through these repeated questions about, well, did the president actually ask India to stop buying oil from Russia? Here's just one taste of it with Jen The president both conveyed that we are here to help them diversify uh, their means of uh, importing oil. Again, our, the imports from the United States are already significant uh, or much bigger than the imports that they get from Russia. Uh, and we, of course, the president conveyed very clearly that it is not in their interest to increase that. But beyond that, I would let the Indian leaders speak for themselves. Or call the State Department or something. Uh, Jeannie, what's your thought on this? Why do we have to be so careful? Well, we do have to be careful, and it's so great to talk to you, Joe. We do have to be so careful because, of course, India is in a politically difficult spot, and we know that they are important to us in our efforts to address China. And so we are walking a tightrope. And, you know, one of the things that we need to keep in mind is the fact that throughout the Cold War, India was historically reliant on Russia for defense, not as much for oil. There's about 1% of its oil coming from Russia, although certainly in the last few months that has eked up a bit. But they have historically been connected with Russia, and we were tied with Pakistan. Now we see that relationship changing, and India has not come out you know, at all in the way that we wanted them to, condemning what's going on in Ukraine. And so that is where we are both for 
oil reasons and for their failure to openly condemn Russia and Putin, we have, you know, tried to address this. Um, but I think what we're hearing publicly, this sort of nice chat, is not what's going on privately, where I suspected that yeah. president was much tougher. Uh, look, you like to think that that's the case, Rick. Uh, India here is helping to fund this war, of course, uh, likes to buy Russian oil, staying neutral on the war. How come China gets so much attention when this is our situation with India? Well, I think, you know, what Jeannie says is right, which is there is a broader and even more lethal potential future conflict with China that looms, and, and India would be a significant ally of ours uh, if we ever get to the point where uh, China tries to flex its muscle. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, you can't operate in a vacuum, uh, and, and India does have a longstanding relationship with Russia, but I, I still think it's, it's, it's really, a, 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 you know, India has been impacted uh, probably more in food than in anything else by the oh. aggression in Russia and, mm -hmm. and, and, and expensive food supplies probably hurts India more than any other free nation in the world. And that is exactly what was discussed uh, today in this meeting. When you look at the readout from the White House, uh, Jeannie, it's it's remarkable. Uh, you, the, you, this whole issue about a war in Ukraine apparently didn't come up until very late in the call. It's like the last line. And they did discuss, to Rick's point, the potential for a food shortage. Does India care what we say? I think they care enormously, and they should. Um, you know, I do think they care. But, you know, I thought it was interesting that the war sort of was was left to the end as yeah. well. But, you know, I also think that it's important that we've heard from people connected with India who say that they feel to a certain extent like the United States has held them to a different standard than they have some of the, their European allies when it comes to oil. And so they feel a bit put out by that as well. And I think the president is trying to be, you know, a, a, a friend to India, but letting them know that we can have their back with defense, but they also need to have our back with condemning Russia for its actions in Ukraine. I don't think they're going to do that anytime soon, though, and that's a big problem. And of course, let's not forget, right on the border, we have Pakistan's prime minister ousted yeah. over the weekend, two nuclear countries back to back with China as their neighbors. Are incredible times, uh, Rick. A lot of questions uh, over the course of today's briefing about whether President Biden might show up in Ukraine like Boris Johnson did. Of course, he got awfully close. It seemed like he was at least about 60 miles across the, the Poland border. But uh, it took on new meaning when we saw Boris Johnson literally walking around with, with, uh, with soldiers carrying machine guns in the deserted streets of the capital, shaking hands with a couple of people who wanted to talk to him. Uh, does that raise the ante here? I mean, Joe Biden, we can't be fooling around like that in Kiev with the president of the United States, right? Well, I don't think we have to. I, I think, you know, this is why you have allies. Uh, Boris Johnson willing to go to Kiev. I think it was a very big demonstration of the fact that Russians have failed in their original intent to own Kiev by now. Yeah. And, and now they're not even fighting there. So the reality is that I think Boris Johnson not only showing Western support, for the Ukrainian people and, and their defense of their nation. But like to make the really good point that the Russians have failed in their land war in, in Ukraine right now, uh, and obviously reamassing their troops in the east, the, now the West has to meet the Ukrainian demands for weapons to be able to stop that initiative. You're not surprised to hear that uh, Vladimir Putin's calling up retired soldiers, Rick, are you? 
Well, if he can sober them up enough to get them to the front line so they can be fodder for the Ukrainian forces, I guess that's probably a strategy. But, you know, I think the fact that uh, if his regulars are doing this poor job, what do you think these uh, reservists are going to be like? I mean, the pot bellies are coming out. I mean, human rights should be uh, imposed just to stop him from slaughtering his own people at this stage. Rick Davis. God, I missed him for a week. You too, Jeannie. That's our panel for today, our signature panel. They'll be back a little bit later on this hour as we turn to the midterm campaign trail as Donald Trump throws his name behind Dr. Oz. Second time endorsing in that primary. We'll talk about it with Bloomberg National Political Reporter Mark Niquette. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. It was the big moment Saturday night's Trump rally in North Carolina. Another endorsement. By Donald Trump, not in North Carolina, but in the Pennsylvania Republican Senate primary. Here he is. By the way, I endorsed another person today, Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania. Dr. Oz. You've heard of him. Great guy, a good man, good man, Harvard educated, tremendous, tremendous career. And they liked him for a long time. That's like a poll. You know, when you're in television for 18 years, that's like a poll. I don't... That means people like you, but he's a, he's a great guy. Donald Trump drawing the equivalency of TV ratings and political polls. I'm, I'm not sure that it works that way. Selma, North Carolina there, and Bloomberg's Mark Niquette writes that this is arguably Donald Trump's most consequential nod of the midterms. It's saying something. He's had quite a number. In fact, he's already had one in this race, a candidate who has since dropped out. And he joins us now, Mark Niquette. Welcome back. It's great to have you. Last time we spoke, you were on your way to another Trump rally. Is the former president smart to consider Dr. Oz's TV ratings in making this choice? I mean, is there something to that? Well, we're going to find out. I mean, Dr. (laughs) Oz clearly has almost universal name ID in Pennsylvania. Uh, But the question um, that still sort of lingers out there is whether uh, conservative voters trust that Dr. Oz actually holds conservative views. Um, there's all kinds of clips out there of, from Dr. Oz's TV show where he's talking about support for red flag laws, um, which makes people question his support for gun rights, and a host of other issues that um, David McCormick, his chief rival in this yeah. primary, and others are, are continually bringing up you know, to just plant the seeds of doubt as whether you know, Dr. Oz is really conservative. This is incredible. Uh, McCormick, who you mentioned, the hedge fund manager, uh, worked really hard to get Trump's support. He surrounded himself with former Trump administration officials, not to mention his own wife, who's deputy national security advisor. He was spotted at Mar-a-Lago just a couple of days before Trump's rally. So this clearly went to the very end. But as as you uh, mentioned in your column, the president says Oz in a statement, Oz will be one of the most able to win the general electric, will be the one, I should say, most able to win the general election. Does it come down to being as simple as that? He just wanted to pick a winner? Yeah, I don't know. The, the short answer, because, you know, again, this this is going to be a close race, I think, in the, the primary race. And, you know, it's not at all clear that, you know, Oz is the, the front runner. In fact, uh, there's there's polls that have... Uh, David McCormick is leading this race. So, the, you know, the primary is, is very much in doubt. And the, the question, I think, is going to be, you know, what influence does Donald Trump's endorsement have, uh, again, with these voters who may be wary of Oz? Mm-hmm. You know, do they need sort of a reason to, uh, uh, you know, get behind him and vote for him? Um, because you're right, both David McCormick and, and Dr. Oz sought uh, Trump's endorsement. They, um, as you 
said they went to Mar-a-Lago to uh, audition essentially for it in person. Yeah. Uh, they've run uh, uh, pictures of, of Trump in their in their ads. You know, on the campaign trail, they talk about how loyal they are to Trump and his America First agenda. Right. So there's a, there's a feeling out there that you know Trump's endorsement could hold sway. Uh, if the race is very close, it could be sort of the factor that decides it. When you think about it, too, they each kind of represent a different part of Donald Trump's life. You've got the showbiz guy there with Dr. Oz. You know, they can talk about TV stuff and being the, being a celebrity, and surely they ran into each other many times over the years in that forum. They were probably booked on the same talk shows. But you've also got a hedge fund manager here, and Donald Trump is, you know, frequently swayed by the influences of Wall Street and, and the financial sector. Uh, maybe we shouldn't be surprised the way this worked out, though. I mean, this has been the showbiz president, right? Right, and, and another factor um, related to, to talk shows that I'm told um, uh, Sean Hannity, the, the Fox News um, host, mm. uh, is a confidant of Trump and had endorsed Oz, and I'm told uh, was lobbying hard for uh, Trump to endorse Oz. Okay. Uh, and, you know, perhaps you know, Trump gave some credence to, to Sean Hannity as well. Primary is May 17th, as you remind us. Uh, Mark, the president, former President Trump, joined by uh, Ted Budd, who he endorsed in North Carolina. How close is that race? Uh, there's polls out that show Budd is, is sort of taking uh, a, a big lead in that race. Um, he started the race behind um, former Governor Pat McCrory, uh-huh. um, but the last couple polls that have come out show Budd increasing his, his advantage. And a lot of that's due to a lot of money that's being spent by the Club for Growth, which is endorsed Bud and uh, is running ad- all kinds of ads, you know, promoting Bud, you know, reminding voters that he's the Trump-endorsed candidate and trying to paint McCrory as, as a liberal. Um, and it was interesting because of the rally in Selma was essentially for Bud, but Trump kind of uh, it turned into an Oz event. By <laughs> announcing the Oz endorsement. How true. Look, this is what uh, people are leading with today. Uh, Mark, but you point out, and, and I think this is, you know, where you're leading with that. If if the Oz nomination or endorsement, I should say, is the most consequential of of Trump this midterm election season, it's the outcome of that race that's going to have say the most about the Trump brand here in in this midterm election season, right? Right. I mean, if if, if Dr. Oz does not, in fact, win the, the Republican primary, there will be a lot of folks who say, well, you know, the the Trump brand, you know, the Trump influence wasn't strong enough to get him over the finish line and yeah. to overcome whatever deficiencies he might have as a candidate. Um, it's sort of the risk that President Trump is taking when he wades into these high-profile races where the winner isn't clear. That's for you sure. know, a lot of times Trump will endorse in races where there's either no opposition or he's endorsing someone who just can't lose and he can claim credit for the victory. But um, if Dr. Oz loses, there'll be questions about whether you know, Trump's influence is as strong mm-hmm. as as we think it is in the Republican Party. And all the Republicans uh, who are waiting to find out if he's going to run uh, for president here might act sooner than later if they see that chink in the armor coming up here. Uh, Mark, did you get to this rally? I know you went to the last one we talked about. Were you at this one in North Carolina? I was at Selma. And like I said, it was it was somewhat odd because, you know, we were there, you know, essentially to, to write a story yeah. about you know, what Trump was doing to support <laughs> his endorsed candidates in North Carolina. You had to write about the like, Dr. Like Oz show instead. And they put right you in a cage support. or anything? <laughs> well, you're actually in the media pen at oh, these that's, rallies. Sounds better that way. Uh, great to talk to you again, Mark. Find his column on the terminal, Mark Niquette, national political reporter. You can read about both of those races, Trump backs Dr. Oz in key Senate endorsement for midterms on the Bloomberg. 
We'll reassemble the panel next. Rick and Jeannie, this is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. So Donald Trump picks Dr. Oz. I suppose it's only the last name that he needs to worry about on the ballot, right? I just I wonder how many of Dr. Oz supporters know his first name, Mehmet. Let's reassemble the panel for their take on this and a couple of other stories we're going to get into right now. Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis on the fastest hour in politics. Rick, you've run campaigns and you live polls. Are they the same as TV ratings? Well, look, I mean, name ID initially is a very important thing, especially right now in these early polls. That's pretty much all they're picking up. Now, you know, there have been millions of dollars of TV that have been placed in the Pennsylvania Senate race. And I would say those are now sort of taking over whatever your public image is based on, you know, the initial name ID you had. So Mm -hmm. early on, yeah, absolutely gives you credibility, helps you raise money, um, you know, introduces you to the the electorate. But sometimes you have to worry about that because uh, uh, not all name ID is good name ID. And when you're known for, you know, daytime TV, that's okay, I guess. But if your friends are Michelle Obama and Oprah, uh, mm-hmm. it's, it, you may have a kind of awkward conversation with Republican primary voters. Or some of the issues uh, that, that uh, Mark Niquette mentioned, Jeannie, does this Donald Trump endorsement actually help Dr. Oz in the end? I think it absolutely helps. And it is just fascinating, as Mark mentioned, you know, and Rick was just talking about, it's an absolute positive in terms of name recognition to have been on TV and all those things. But on the flip side, he has a long history of statements and relationships that can come back to haunt him in a Republican primary. And miles of tape, Jeannie. I mean, they can start (laughs) making those commercials right now, right? Well, I guess McCormick already is. That's right. They can absolutely do that. And and voters are going to hear right from Oz's mouth. I mean, this is the thing. He can't escape that. We used to talk about this people in office, they have to worry about defending their votes. He has to worry about defending what he said five years ago on Oprah's TV show. That's a different thing. And there's one guy who understands what that's like. His name is Donald Trump, right, Rick? I just wonder how much of this sort of showbiz connection is what led to this. Remember, we used to hear when he was picking uh, cabinet officials or, or, or preparing to make a nomination, he would handle it like a central casting decision, right? He, you know, Rex Tillerson, well, he looks like a, he looks like a, a state secretary. Let's, let's, let's make him the job or the secretary of defense, you know, the mad dog. This would fill uh, the, the, the blank here for Donald Trump when it comes to a senator, no? Yeah, uh, it was an open secret in Washington that if you wanted to actually have a conversation directly with Donald Trump, you'd get on Fox and, you know, you wouldn't do an interview. (laughs) And and whether it was for influence or whether you were trying to get a job, uh, TV was the medium that he learned from. Uh, You know, but I would say it's a little odd because, you know, when you look at the confluence of the Trump Inc. around um, uh, David McCormick, you know, Mm -hmm. Stephen Miller, Hope Hicks, you know, these folks, uh, you really you really got to believe that. Wow. I mean, it must be an inside deal where Trump has said, go work for this guy because we're going to help him Uh, for Trump to cut the legs off of his own people. Uh, by endorsing someone who they are all working against uh, is is actually quite unusual for Donald Trump. Well, I'll tell you what, we'll see how this goes. Uh, do you agree, Jeannie, with Mark, though, that this is the most consequential of the picks so far? 
You know, I, I think this one is because, you know, you had two people and either one of them, as Rick was just talking about, could have gotten Trump's endorsement. You know, the other one, of course, we're all watching is what happens in Wyoming. There's no surprise who he endorsed there. I think that's incredibly, you know, incredibly consequential in terms of what it says about his ability to, you know, move the primary voters. But in terms of, you know, picking a winner, this one is yeah. certainly going to be it. I want to ask you both about what Joe Biden was up to today, not just speaking with the Prime Minister of India, but he held an event on uh, gun violence, on curbing gun violence, specifically, as I read here on the terminal, vowing federal prosecution for what they call ghost guns with new rules that he announced today. He spoke about it with the vice president uh, at his side in the Rose Garden. Here's President Biden. Law enforcement is sounding the alarm. Our communities are paying the price. And we're acting today. The United States Department of Justice is making it illegal for a business to manufacture one of these kits without a serial number. Illegal. These ghost gun kits, I, I had no idea how easy these were. They even had one up on the, the stairs there with them. A little table was set up. It was, looks like a toy gun, right? Here are the parts. You put it together. He says, this thing is real. As I read, I learned a lot about this today. I guess a lot of people probably did. You can, you can make one of these things. You can open the box and be shooting it within 30 minutes. Uh, it's not something out of a movie. This has become a much bigger part of the of the gun industry. And these rules would also uh, force sellers, like even pawn shop resellers, anybody to actually put serial numbers on these guns because that's what they are missing is a serial number and it makes them impossible to trace. Rick, this is not a coincidence that we're getting into this today. Crime was a massive issue for Republicans in some of the primaries and some of the state elections that we've already seen. We know that it's going to be a major theme of the elections going into November here. Suddenly, gun control is on the White House agenda, or, or is, should we term this as crime control? Uh, I think that uh, I was mostly disappointed that the vice president didn't show up today with a T-shirt that says ghost gun busters, who you want to call. Um, but, you know, I didn't get my way on that. But this is an important issue. Uh, uh, communities are ravaged by violent crime. Uh, uh, murders and suicides are way up. People's access to, to guns, especially these untraceable weapons, uh, have exploded in recent years. A huge yeah. problem for the police force. And so, yeah, I mean, like when you look at the polling data, it's pretty clear. People think their communities are unsafe and they want somebody to do something about it. The problem that, that Biden has is he's got half his party out there screaming, defund the police and, mm. you know, try to make it harder to, to actually take these things off the street. And, and now he's going to take this, this position that's going to actually close off his, his access to people who are more centrist and right wing, um, you know, who want, want free access to guns. Why this is an issue, I don't understand it amongst the gun community because yeah. it's really un, intolerable to have this kind of a weapon on the street. Where, yeah, how did you uh, interpret this, Genie? the timing of this event today? And he's getting to the crime issue, but also getting to the issue of gun control. And so you know, Republicans are already screaming about this in opposition. They are. And, you know, we heard in the Katanji Brown-Jackson hearings that this is one of the key issues that Republicans are going to run on, that Democrats are weak on crime. Yeah. The president in his State of the Union, and again today, and we're going to hear more about it this week, are trying to stand up and say, we are addressing this issue. Of course, it is telling. He's doing this via executive order. He can't ban these sales. He can't ban the distribution that's got to be done by Congress, but Congress can't get its act together and do that. So this is what he has left to do. 
And Republicans are going to, of course, cry foul on this. And Democrats aren't going to be satisfied because it doesn't go as far as they would like it to do. Again, that requires an act of Congress. He can't get there. And you saw the latest CBS poll, crime, mm-hmm. the third most important issue on voters' minds as yeah. they think about November now. But, but if they're going to be thinking about gun control and not crime, then what was the point of that event, Rick? You know, it's it's hard for me to really understand it. I mean, like, if I were doing Crime Week at the White House, I would do this event in Chicago or mm. Miami or someplace that has a high crime rate, you know, where he's tackling this, and then go out and campaign it for a while. This is ready-made for areas outside of Washington who are going to get all hung up on the gun rights and Second Amendment and things like that. Get out of Washington. Uh, I, honestly, I, this, this event today made absolutely no sense in the current dialogue of trying to create issues that'll help him in the midterms. We're spending time with Rick and Jeannie, our signature panel on Sound On, Monday edition. Tomorrow, we're going to be talking at this time about inflation. In fact, we're going to start talking about it at 8.30 in the morning with the CPI on the way. The White House is trying to get ahead of this because everyone knows this is going to be a tough number, and inflation has, of course, been driving interest rates higher and driving the conversation, honestly, about politics and the economy in tandem now for months. I was blown away to hear today the White House press secretary, Jen Psaki, actually illustrating the difference, Jeannie, between headline inflation and core inflation in a briefing that is made for regular people who are not economists. If this is what it has come to, how bad is this news going to be tomorrow? It's going to be, as some people are saying, it looks like it's going to be a doozy. They know that. They're trying to prepare for it. And it is head-scratching that that is how they chose to address it because that is not going to make sense to, you know, about 90% of the population if they can even stomach listening to the explanation. I know I teach, and it's, it's, you know, makes people fall asleep. (laughs) Rick, I I can't imagine that a press secretary has gone that far before. Like, well, look, I want you to, you look at the core, she says, look at the difference in that headline number and remember the Putin price hike. Well, these are these are people who just put out a budget like two weeks ago that had uh, inflation at 2.3 percent. So mm. they are in denial. All right. They they've come to the conclusion from what I can tell is that they cannot win on this issue. So never talk about it. Don't say you're trying to fix it. Don't try to tackle it in public uh, and just try to confuse people uh, by these kind of crazy distinctions that are meaningless. Uh, you know, when Jen Psaki does this from the podium, uh, I'll be honest with you. Uh, I think one day they're going to come with this idea that, hey, we actually have to address this issue. It's number one in the minds oh, of American voters and, and they have to have a plan. I know right Brian now, Deese would no argue plan. with you. He'd say, but Brick, we pulled in CEOs. We got the supply chain. We're trying to get the ports together. This is a global problem. I'd say food and gas. Until you do something about the prices associated with those increases, you're not even in the game. What's the answer, Jeannie? Well, they have to stop trying to blame Putin because the problem is people know this started before the war started. And it's beyond gas and oil. It's Mm. beyond filling up your gas tank. That's bad enough. But it's to food and everything else. So I think they have to be honest. And, you know, they have taken steps. They can't do a lot, but they've taken some steps. They need to talk about those and do more. But they can't avoid the issue. What a pleasure to spend time with Rick and Jeannie, our panel on Sound On, and great to be back. Thanks to both of you for your insights. With apologies to Ray Parker Jr., Rick Davis. I'm Joe Matthew in New York. I'll meet you back here tomorrow on Balance of Power. This is Bloomberg.